1: the Game Boy, notable for such landmark titles as Tetris, Super Mario Land, and Link's Awakening. For some players, however, their nostalgia towards the system is tied not only to its games, but its wild assortment of accessories. The era produced a glut of unexpected peripherals for the device, everything from a camera to a fish sonar was covered in a frantic bid to cash in on Nintendo's hit handheld. Many of these fetch top dollar in online auctions years later, as enthusiasts continue to hunt down these increasingly obscure pieces of video game history. But for nearly 30 years, one of these has consistently eluded collectors around the world. A device known as Workboy. This PDA-style add-on would have granted users access to all manner of productivity-related applications propping the Game Boy up with its accompanying stand and plugging it in, promised to essentially transform it into a small personal computer. Officially licensed by Nintendo and produced by Washington-based Fabtech Inc, the workboy was previewed by multiple press outlets in the early 90s, before vanishing without a trace. In the absence of an explanation from any of the parties involved, a mystery spanning multiple decades lingered. What really happened to the Workboy, and would it be possible for me to find one nearly 30 years later? I set out to answer these questions and more. The result was an investigation spanning many months. In this edition of Game History Secrets, I bring you the story of the Workboy and my experiences with it.
2: You can have all the power and excitement of Nintendo right in the palm of your hand.
1: Tracing the origins of the work Boy takes us all the way back to the early 1990s. Online, information on its creation has been largely sourced from a small handful of gaming magazines that had written features on it back in the day, such as Nintendo Power. The Game Boy was in its prime. And two companies had joined forces across two continents to take advantage of this rapidly expanding user base. Source Research and Development in the UK designed the peripheral, and FabTech, a Washington based startup, was planning to produce it in close collaboration with Nintendo. Trademark filings indicate that the device was first registered by Nintendo of America in January 1992. Several months later, the workboy came to the attention of the press, when it made a couple of appearances at trade shows, most notably the Consumer Electronics Show in May. In the midst of a massive Nintendo presence at the event was a modest Fabtech booth, where an early prototype could be glimpsed, displaying its various functions. Responses to the demonstration were largely positive. UK publication GameZone described it as an impressive little utility, and said, Nintendo's success was visible by its showing at the CES, it virtually had a whole hanger to itself, filled with its own products and those of its developers, but there was little on offer that was radically different, little that is, except the workboy. A Chicago Tribune writer, on the other hand, was less enamoured with it, branding it as the exhibition's most ridiculous Nintendo peripheral. It's just the thing for the 12-year-old entrepreneur on the go, and it should be a big hit with young drug dealers everywhere, they said. These comments aside, the Workboy's star was clearly rising. The developers were being profiled in magazines, Nintendo was pushing it at events, and it was even given a glowing endorsement on UK television. Gamesmaster, a popular UK video game TV show, ranked it as their number one add-on for handheld consoles. What's more, is that they had arranged to launch the Workboy exclusively at a Gamesmaster live event, due to take place in December 19th. 1992. Games Master Live did go forward at Birmingham's NEC, but the workboy was nowhere to be found. The show never revisited the topic, and the device was never again seen. Despite this, among those aware of the niche add-on, it has become commonly believed that it did receive a release, but that very few units were produced. This idea seemingly spread to popular internet series The Angry Video Game Nerd, as seen in his coverage of Game Boy accessories.
2: Lots of these Game Boy accessories are rare. Some of the ones that I couldn't get my hands on are the Game Boy FM radio, the WorkBoy, where you can plug in a keyboard and turn the Game Boy into a personal computer, just in case you didn't like using a
1: monitor. The truth is, however, that the WorkBoy was never released and no prototype units have ever been recovered. To find out why, I began reaching out to former staff from Source R&D, its original creators. As I began my research in late 2019, it became apparent to me that I was not the first person to look into this. I spoke to a number of fellow writers and gaming history enthusiasts who had also attempted to get answers on why the workboy had disappeared. Tracking down the developers of an unreleased peripheral from nearly three decades ago has its challenges. The two major companies behind it, Source and FabTech, ceased operations long ago, and everyone who worked there has obviously moved on with their lives. They've found work in other industries, some of them have retired, and in some cases they've forgotten a lot of what they were privy to. But all was not lost, I did have a couple of leads to go on. A number of Source staff were featured in a 1992 issue of Game Zone magazine, having both names and faces made tracking them down considerably easier. All these years later, the former members of Source typically maintained a fairly minimal internet presence, but thankfully the person whose insight I most sought was reachable. That was the original architect of the workboy, Eddie Gill, who agreed to share his side of the story. Eddie founded Source in 1987. The company, based in Leeds, England, allowed him to realise his ambitions of inventing new technologies. Alongside these technological pursuits, they were also creating video games. This arm of the business led to them sometimes being referred to as Source the Software House. The company developed a number of titles, including Game Boy Puzzle Game Pyramids of Ra and Noah's Ark, a religious platformer for NES published by Konami. It was only a matter of time before the company's fascinations with technology and video games overlapped, and in early 1992, the Workboy was born. Eddie, partnering with Fabtech in the US, had identified a gap in the market for a Game Boy add-on for productivity purposes. With personal computers still being financially prohibitive to many and holding limited appeal to the masses, Eddie's concept for the workboy presented a more accessible alternative. It was a lower cost option that could be used with a device many families already owned. The gadget offered a multitude of different functions, including a world clock, calculator, bank account statements, weight and currency conversions, and an appointment book. It would have retailed at around 79-89 US dollars in around late 1992, early 1993. As to why this all never came about, Eddie presented his recollection of events, but suggested I reach out to someone else for clarification. He also left me with one more tantalizing piece of information. Eddie had not seen a workboy in person for many years. Despite creating it, he did not own a prototype himself, and believed that potentially only two were left in existence. One, he said, was rumoured to have been retained deep in the vaults of Nintendo, the other was possibly in the possession of a former colleague of his. This individual was Frank Ballou, the founder of Fabtech, who was in charge of production on The Workboy. Ballou was a games industry veteran of many years, having worked at numerous big companies at the dawn of the home console market. Years later, he had left the business behind and was imparting his wisdom at speaking gigs around the world. Skyping in from his home in Athens, Greece, Frank regaled me with how he came to be in charge of a lost Game Boy add-on. His time in the industry started in 1975 at Atari, where he became the Vice President of Marketing at their coin-operated games division. There, he helped steer the company's game output through an unprecedented period of growth. Ultimately, however, Frank was fired from the video game giant in 1982. He claims this happened, as the company's management was restructured to incentivize Atari exec Don Osborne from leaving to work for a competitor. Frank ended up at Nintendo of America in 1983, placed in charge of sales and marketing at their coin-op division. After nine months in the job, he was headhunted by arcade game producer Gottlieb, known as Milestar Electronics at the time, to run their pinball and video development. Frank says he departed Nintendo on very good terms, and was even told by Nintendo of America founder Minoru Arakawa that he had an open invitation to return. This was an offer Frank ended up accepting much sooner than anticipated. Less than one year later, he quit Milestar following friction with their parent company Columbia Pictures.
2: After nine months, I went back to Nintendo. Howard Lincoln, who is senior vice president, goes, Frank, what do you mean? Our cow and Ron, Judy are nuts. How do we know you won't do this again? I go, Howard? Howard, if somebody offers me a 35-40% raise again, I probably will do it.
1: After several years at Nintendo, the winds of change were sweeping the industry. As their grip on the home console market tightened, the arcade industry was steadily becoming less of a focus for Nintendo. Shortly after releasing their PlayChoice 10 cabinets in 1986, Frank made the decision to leave and form his own company.
2: As I told Nintendo, I got guys... You've got more to offer the industry. And and I go, I've got more to offer the industry. They go, Frank, we thought you would say that, but we understand.
1: In 1987, Frank formed Fabtech, a game publisher and technology company whose name was derived from its own initials.
2: We had some shit games like everybody else, but, but we had some classic games. Uh, a game called Cabal, which did very, very well for us.
1: While heading up Fabtech, Frank was also running the American branch of Japanese arcade game manufacturer Irem. It was through that job that in the late 80s, he met source founder Eddie Gale, creator of The Workboy.
2: Eddie was so so far ahead of his time. Overall premise for The Workboy was parents are going to get tired of buying games for their kids. Let's buy something that the parents and grandparents will think it's useful for them.
1: As our chat led in it was time developing the workboy, Frank casually dropped a bombshell on our conversation.
2: I'm looking up, over it in my bookcase, one of the original workboys just just sitting there, you know, and uh, you know, it, 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 it could have been something. <laughs>
1: just to go back a little bit uh did you say that you've got uh something of the workboy there
2: oh yeah oh yeah i i i've got one that hold on
1: my earphones won't reach out for a few moments of rummaging later he appeared on my screen workboy in hand oh wow <laughs>
2: okay so, so you can see that then, yes? I can see that, yeah.
1: Adding to the gravity of this, Frank mentioned that he believed this was the last work boy left. When the project met its end, he held onto it as a keepsake, a fond reminder of what could have been. After our call, Frank gave me a closer look at this near-finalised prototype, it was in good condition, having survived numerous overseas trips and years of sitting on a shelf. We both agreed that it would more than likely still work, however, we had no way to test it since Frank did not own an original Game Boy himself. I offered to send him one, but he had a simpler idea. A few weeks later, it arrived in my mailbox. Seeing it in person was more than a little surreal. Up until this point, the only images of it online that I could find were taken 28 years ago, and yet, here it was, well kept, preserved in a Game Boy Advance carry case alongside a prototype of Source's Pyramid of Raw game. The question was, would it work? I hooked it up to a few different Game Boys, and the results were anticlimactic. Previously, it was my understanding that simply plugging it into the Game Boy's link cable port and turning it on would allow me to access its features. That was how it was presented in Games Master's piece back in the day, and that was also Frank's recollection of how it functioned but when I plugged it in, basically nothing happened. The Game Boy wasn't visibly affected in any way, regardless of whether or not I had a cartridge inserted. There was one sign of life, however. Plugging it into a powered-on Game Boy caused the workboy to emit a fairly loud beep out of the speaker on its underside. I caught up with Eddie Gill, whose comprehensive knowledge of the device allowed us to diagnose the issue. That noise the Workboy was making was actually its alarm function being tripped. The Workboy had its own clock and speaker, allowing for the Gameboy to serve as an alarm clock. This was possibly a bug that had yet to be smoothed out of this prototype unit. It was at this point that it also became clear why the Workboy wasn't working. Prior to our discussion, Frank had emphasised to me that his memory of the device might be less than perfect, and as it turned out, he was right to do so, because this keyboard was only one piece of the puzzle. As Eddie explained, a separate cartridge was required to access its software. In hindsight, this might seem obvious, but this was the first mention of a cartridge being included that I had come across. None of the original literature from the project referenced one, nor did any of the magazine write-ups I had seen. I went back to the drawing board and started reaching out to some other former developers to see if, by some remote chance, someone still had the software we needed. It was then that one of these game industry alumni raised a possibility I had only briefly considered. Starting in April 2020, following a number of high-profile security breaches in the previous two years, the contents of some hacked Nintendo servers leaked online. The files, originally linked to on 4chan, encompassed a mammoth hoard of data going back decades. This gigantic dump of illicitly obtained intellectual property was christened as the GigaLeak. While gaming historians the world over revelled in the discovery of previously unseen and unused assets from classic Nintendo games, my mind was elsewhere. It occurred to me, what if, by some strange twist of fate, these hackers had inadvertently obtained the Workboy software? It was a remote possibility, but not something that I could rely upon. Several weeks after recovering the peripheral, the dust was settling on the most significant Nintendo data leak up until that point. I was waiting to hear back from a potential lead, when the final piece of the puzzle slid into place. On the 9th of September 2020, another big leak of Nintendo data spilled out onto the internet, and enthusiasts quickly began rifling through it. I was put in touch with one such individual, a contributor to the cutting room floor known only as Waluigi. They had excavated a ROM from the latest drop, originating from Source and Fabtech. It was none other than the very Workboy software I had been searching for. After 28 years of essentially nothing, the software had leaked within only a few weeks of me obtaining the prototype hardware. This wild coincidence wasn't lost on myself and the members of the Source team I'd been speaking to. For as ethically questionable as these leaks were, one upside was that they were reuniting former developers with their long-lost work. Eddie Gill, for instance, later told me that he never imagined having a copy of this software again. In the hours after this data was posted, a small handful of interested parties began tinkering around with the WorkBoy ROM, though initial attempts to emulate the software were met with mixed results. The title screen and a menu displaying several different options were accessible, but the applications themselves crashed upon selection. The only one that worked as intended was the Calculator app, where users could move a cursor around the screen and push buttons. It is, as I mentioned earlier, this software is only one piece of the puzzle. It was built to be used by a peripheral. The Workboy keyboard is not just an accessory, it is intrinsic to the software on a programming level. Without modifications, raw emulation could only take us so far. It was built to be navigated using the buttons on this keyboard. The Game Boy's inputs had limited functionality. Furthermore, the Game Boy does not have a built-in clock, the WorkBoy keyboard does. Without the add-on, there is no way for the clock app to be able to read the time. There were other complications to weigh up as well. Eddie shared that the game cart they were developing contained a small amount of memory, as did the WorkBoy keyboard itself. With all of this said, the time had finally come to put the device to the test, and introduce software to hardware. After close to three decades of dormancy, there was no guarantee that this, potentially the last remaining workboy, would still work. I burned the ROM to a rewritable cartridge, inserted both cart and add-on, then powered it on. The Workboy's usual beeping came out of the speaker once again, but as I booted up the software, the alarm gave way to silence. A push of the keyboard's return button confirmed that it was functional. In fact, it worked without any issues. The buttons across the top of the keyboard allowed instantaneous access to each application. Switching between them was a swift and easy process. All of the errors present in emulation were gone. The clock did think that it had been awakened in the year 2055, but aside from that, it was working, as were all the other apps. The Workboy had lived. In total, the software features 12 individual applications, and most of them have secondary functions within them. The most straightforward of these is the clock, which displays the time in both analogue and digital formats. It has an alarm feature as well. There is a basic calculator which you operate by pressing different letters on the QWERTY keyboard since it lacks dedicated number buttons. The keys are labelled above them with their alternate functions in the calculator app. The Addressbook app would have allowed users to record phone numbers and other info in a database, although its functionality in this build is limited. By inputting phone numbers into the Workboy, players could use it as a digital phone book and automatically dial numbers by playing the dial tones into a phone. The Workboy sports a variety of conversion-related applications too. For one, you can view the difference between Fahrenheit and Celsius temperature scales with its interactive thermometer. Another app offers conversion between metric and imperial systems, with a plethora of different options like inches to centimeters, feet to meters, and pounds to kilograms. On top of that, the device even offers currency conversion, although it requires an added degree of input on the part of the user. The user must manually insert the exchange rate between the two different currencies before the workboy can begin crunching the numbers. This is of course because the device has no way of automatically updating the rates itself. On the topic of money, the Workboy also has facilities for helping manage savings. Users can manually input their income and expenditure to keep track of their finances. Data inputted can be saved to the Workboy's records and reviewed later. The remainder of the Workboy's tools relate to world geography and languages. The World Functions app includes what it calls a mini-translator. These can search individual words or peruse a glossary of subjects to choose from, such as greetings, travel, food, weather, medical, and emergency. Each category includes a number of common words and phrases that can be translated between English, German, French, Spanish, and Italian. The rest of the workboy fully supports these same five languages as well. Lastly is the world map, which allows users to peruse the different countries of the world. Simply type in the name of a country and the map will be highlighted with its location. As a bonus, a select handful of major world nations even include an abridged 8-bit rendition of their respective national anthems that will play when selected. The Workboy contains around a dozen national anthems in total. And there you have it, the Workboy is real, it works, and this build, labelled 8.87, is very close to a finished product. Eddie Gill believes that this version, recovered from Nintendo's servers, was one of several prototypes sent to them during development. Only a few elements remained unclear, such as the device's targeted ability to connect to personal computers, which would have supposedly allowed it to receive contact information and other data. The question remains then, why was it never put into production? The decision ultimately came down to the head of Fabtech, Frank Ballou. Just months before the launch of the Workboy, Frank pulled the plug when he learned that plans were in motion at Nintendo to slash the price of the Gameboy. In light of this, Frank worried that the Workboy could not be priced competitively enough to succeed. The Workboy itself could have retailed for as much as $89.95 in the US. The original launch price of the Gameboy was $89.99 post-price cut, the Workboy could have potentially been more expensive than the handheld itself in a worst-case scenario. The Workboy's planned early launch in late 92 at Games Master Live didn't move forward, and in around 1993 the project was effectively scrapped. According to Eddie Gill, had it not been, there were other hurdles laying ahead that the device would have had to contend with. In July of 93, around when it was once intended to be in production, a large explosion ripped through a factory making material for computer chips in Japan. At the time, the Sumitomo Chemical Co. facility in Nihama produced more than half of the world's supply of an epoxy resin called Crezel. This is used to make protective cases for computer chips, in particular DRAM, the form of memory which would have been used in the Workboy. As a direct result of this disaster, the price of DRAMs soared. Had the device been in production, this would have been just one of the challenges Fabtech would have had to navigate. In spite of this, Frank told me that he does believe the Workboy would have been successful, and that he has his regrets about cancelling it.
2: It was at that time that I made that brilliant, brilliant decision that I kicked myself in the butt for, that, I pulled the plug, and we didn't go forward because I still think at that price, we we could have sold some units on it. See, so you, you you regret it to 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 a certain extent. Yes, I'm I'm looking over it in my bookcase, one of the original workboys just just sitting there, and uh, you know it it, it 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 could have been something.
1: A couple of years following the cancellation, Frank's time at Fabtech came to an end, as he transferred ownership of the company to his wife at the time and moved on to Pastures New. Eddie Gill, on the other hand, continued a to toy with the idea of the Workboy. His original design helped inspire a new device he patented in 1994 for a personal communicator with a keyboard and touchscreen. Gill later licensed this design to Nokia. It became the basis for the Nokia 9000 series of devices that launched in 1996. A few years later, Eddie became a design consultant at Nintendo, where he helped draw plans for a number of accessories that also never came to be. Among his ideas was a revamped Workboy for the Game Boy Advance, which held the tentative name Workboy 2. It encompassed many of the same features of its predecessor, and was planned to have online functionality of some kind, such as email and web browsing, as well as a word processor. Production on the Workboy 2 never moved forward, and no prototype was ever built. All that remains of it are these concepts, showing the keyboard and shell that would have attached to the handheld. Eddie left Nintendo in 2001, marking the end of his decade-long endeavours to bring a productivity add-on to the Game Boy. Many of the Workboy's features are today taken for granted in modern devices, but it isn't hard to appreciate the novelty it would have held back in the early 90s. In an era before widespread internet access and smartphones, this was a Swiss Army knife of productivity applications running on something as simple as the original Gameboy. Whether or not it would have found an audience, however, is something we will never know. By the late 90s, Nintendo was enjoying a comfortable lead over the handheld video game market. With Sega all but vanquished in this corner of the industry, the Game Boy and its successor, the Game Boy Color, were dominating. It was in light of these high sales that Nintendo had been exploring a number of ways to expand upon the Game Boy line through peripherals and add-ons, and in 1999, the company hit upon an opportunity. Approached by a former executive of theirs, and an inventor from the UK, Nintendo of America was presented with a chance to realise one of the most ambitious Game Boy attachments of all time. This first-party add-on was poised to open up a world of wireless communication to Game Boy Color users, including email, web browsing, photo messaging, and much more. The story behind this device has remained an obscure secret of Nintendo history for over 20 years, until now. In this episode of Game History Secrets, I reveal the never-before-seen Nintendo Page Boy and what happened to it. Source Research and Development was a game studio in Leeds, England. In the early 90s, the company developed a relationship with Nintendo of America when their founder, Eddie Gale, invented a productivity add-on for the original Game Boy. The Workboy, as it was called, was made in a close partnership between Nintendo, Source R&D, and Fabtech, a game publisher run by former Nintendo executive Frank Ballou. Despite leaving a lasting impression on gamers and the few press outlets that sampled the device, the Workboy ultimately never made it to market. This multifunctional keyboard add-on was deemed too risky of an investment by Fabtech founder Frank Ballou after he learned that Nintendo was planning to drop the price of the Game Boy. Had the Workboy launched, it may have cost as much as the Game Boy system itself, a potential comparison that was unfavourable enough for Ballou to shelve the whole project in 1993. For inventor Eddie Gill, on the other hand, the ideas behind the Workboy would live on. The concept inspired him to create an original design for a mobile phone and communicator as head of research and development at a company named Maxim Phillips. In 1995, the gadget was bought by Nokia and was eventually turned into the Nokia 9000 series of devices. The Workboy was never able to see an official release, but Eddie's drive to develop a Game Boy add-on was far from extinguished. It was in late 1997 that he left his position at Maxim Phillips to pursue what he considered to be a spiritual continuation of the workboy with new ideas of its own. He independently started work on this new project, drawing plans for a Game Boy Color add-on based around communication. The project however required plenty of technological savvy, and for that Eddie reached out to his brother Christopher Gill, an experienced programmer and digital artist. While Eddie's speciality was ideas, he told me, Chris excelled in realising those ideas from a technical standpoint. Chris had previously worked alongside Eddie at Source on the Workboy in a similar arrangement, where he was responsible for graphic design. While the Workboy was essentially a third-party add-on with close ties to Nintendo, it was apparent to the Gil Brothers that they would need Nintendo to fully embrace their new device as a product of their own, in order for it to reach its potential. The scale of their ambition with this new gadget was immense. Eddie envisioned an add-on for the Game Boy Color that would allow users to communicate with one another over long distances. They could send each other messages, photos, emails, they could view the internet to get news updates, and all of this would be accomplished completely wirelessly from almost anywhere in the world. Years before Nintendo even considered implementing such technology into their handhelds, the add-on aimed to revolutionise communication between Game Boy owners with a distinctly Nintendo flourish. The communication worked via radio waves, using the same frequency employed by most two-way pages at the time. In honour of this fact, Eddie named the device Page Boy. The group formed to create this new product would come to be known simply as Wizard. Their plans for the Page Boy were extensive, but could only be realised through Nintendo's full support, according to Eddie. Gaining their cooperation would be easier said than done, since Wizard had no formal inroads with the tech giant at the time. However, they had an ace up their sleeve, in the form of ex-Nintendo executive Frank Ballou. Having joined forces for the Workboys several years earlier, Eddie hoped that Frank would help him get his foot in the door once again, as he attempted to sell them on this new concept. After hearing the details of the project, Baloo quickly agreed to get them an introduction with the higher-ups at Nintendo of America, the branch at which he had previously worked. A meeting was set up in 1999, in which Eddie presented their proposal to Nintendo of America's heads. Those in attendance included NOA president Minoru Arakawa, chairman Howard Lincoln, and engineering head Wayne Allen Shirk. The pitch was meticulous in its research, presenting in great detail how it would work. This included a technical breakdown of how the pageboy would transfer data by way of radio telemetry and concept images of both hardware and software. Not only did they have documents and art showing what it would look like, Wizard had commissioned the creation of physical models of the device via Sirius Model Making, another company in Leeds, England. As well as all of this, the group had built a visual demonstration in Microsoft PowerPoint, previewing what the Page Boy would look like in action. All of its major targeted features were on display in this interactive tour of the proposed software, such as messaging and internet access. In my research, I was able to recover a version of the demo used to sell their ideas to Nintendo, The software was heavily themed around the company's iconic mascot, Mario, complete with Wizard's own take on the music from the Mario games, and even some voice acting. To start off with, the title screen art featured the character posing with a version of the Page Boy logo, next to a graphic of Planet Earth and several Game Boys. There was also Ask Mario, a proposed Nintendo search engine optimised for the Page Boy, where users could look up various queries, such as items for sale. Mario would have appeared throughout these applications, speaking to the user briefly as they transitioned between them. There was even the idea to have him whistle the World 1-1 theme from Super Mario Bros. as content was loading.
0: It's-a-coming.
1: They were keenly aware that getting access to the Mario IP was a long shot, Eddie Gill told me, but they were leaving no stone unturned in their efforts to win any way over. The Page Boy really held nothing back when it came to embracing Nintendo as a brand, for example, one suggested part of its software imagined making a version of the officially licensed magazine Nintendo Power available for users to read. PageBoy Boy owners would have been able to read up on the latest game news and reviews all on the handheld. In addition to this was a highly ambitious feature named Game Boy TV. This was intended to be a part of the software that could receive a live broadcast from Nintendo that would display exclusive information on upcoming products in real time. It was envisioned as a potential avenue for the company to announce new games directly to consumers anytime they wanted. If that sounds familiar, then yes, Gil was essentially attempting an early version of the Nintendo Direct on the Game Boy Color well over a decade before those live events were introduced. Many possibilities were being explored of Game Boy TV, such as the idea of players submitting their game scores via Page Boy, and those with the highest would have their names displayed during broadcasts. All of these apps would have been aided by the implementation of animations, graphics, fonts, and sounds being pre-installed on the device itself. This would have allowed for minimal data usage and quicker loading speeds with a targeted rate of around 400 characters per minute. Alongside gaming previews and reviews, Page Boy users were also supposed to be able to get access to world news, sports results, and weather forecasts. The latest weather information would have been accessed via a scrolling map, not as similar to the interface Nintendo later employed for the Wii's weather channel. The add-on's premiere feature, however, was its two-way messaging users would have been able to type out a message on their system, then choose pre-stored, animations, music, and themes to bring it to life. For instance, they could select a letter with a happy birthday song, and an animation of a birthday cake. It was also suggested that the Page Boy would have been able to connect to existing Game Boy peripherals to expand its capabilities. Wizard hoped that owners of the Game Boy Camera could take photographs of themselves using its front-facing camera and share them with one another. In other words, they wanted to allow users to message selfies to one another, years before the mobile phone industry came to realise this concept. Furthermore, they were hoping that the pageboy would be able to save images and messages received, and then print them using the Game Boy printer. In order to make this work, the Page Boy would have fitted into the Game Boy's cartridge slot, and then would have had its own additional cartridge slot on top of it. This would allow users to have the add-on attached to their Game Boy and still be able to play games, or for the Page Boy to interface directly with other peripherals. In such a scenario, Page Boy itself would have been accessed by pressing down on the D-pad upon startup. The developers were even proposing a phone system that could be used to email pageboys. Consumers who wanted to interact with one without using a pageboy directly were intended to be able to call a phone service, specify a message and theme, before giving the operator a particular pageboy address. This would have been the only paid element of the product, aside from the upfront cost of the device at retail. Using PageBoy's onboard features, such as messaging or Game Boy TV, would have been entirely free. No subscriptions or accounts were required either. All of this and more was presented to Nintendo of America at their initial meeting, and the response was one of immediate fascination according to Eddie. Anyway, President Minoru Arakawa took a particular interest, believing it had the potential to be a commercial success. He responded by greenlighting an internal investigation at Nintendo as to how they would get the product to market. The Wizard Group's efforts, 10 months of rigorous research had paid off, as Nintendo agreed to work with them directly on this new project. Eddie signed on at Nintendo of America as a design consultant in summer 1999, and from that point on, the Page Boy was being looked at as an internally-made first-party add-on for the Game Boy line of systems. As per the suggestion of Peter Eck, Nintendo of America's Director of Network Products, the project was given the codename Cheetah. For the following months, Eddie worked with a team at Nintendo of America further exploring the many possibilities of the add-on. Among these were considerations for allowing the device to unlock additional content in games. For example, players could theoretically access an exclusive level or item if they had the pageboy attached, using its radio capabilities to allow for live authentication. On the other hand, its planned clock app was reminiscent of the Workboy with essentially the same set of functions, the time displayed in analog and digital formats, as well as an alarm capability. In another leaf out of the Workboy's book, the Page Boy would have required its own batteries, two double A's in this case, and would have had its own built-in memory. Some thought had been given as to how it would function as a physical product also. In addition to the physical models that were made, the team was weighing up the option of adding a clip that would allow the Page Boy to be attached to a belt or other item of clothing. Documents indicate that the device would have vibrated when a new message was received. Nintendo's investigation into the Page Boy spanned about three years, starting in 1999, and coming to a close in summer 2002. During this time, Eddie had gained the interest of PageMart, a company based in Dallas, Texas, which operated a narrowband personal communication service network that allowed for two-way paging. After the network's launch in 1998, PageMart was set to become a major player in the communications market and was having preliminary talks with Eddie's team to provide the network service that would be the backbone of the pageboy. Nintendo's Peter Eck eventually took over negotiations as they progressed. A great deal of time was spent deliberating over how the add-on would send photographs over the air from the Game Boy camera. Nintendo brought in their own experts to examine the situation, who expressed concerns about file compression. However, Eddie was able to reduce the size of pictures imported from the camera by removing every other line of pixels from the screen. The end result, he said, bore a resemblance to 1960s television displays. It was an unconventional solution that impressed Nintendo and allowed the team to hit their file size target. What had initially sold Nintendo on the Page Boy in general was its potential as a product for international audiences. However, over time, it became clear that potential wasn't as strong as had been initially believed. Nintendo liked it on paper by all accounts, but from a technological perspective, it would have only been feasible in a limited number of markets, such as the US. Their investigation found that there were no cost-effective duplex wireless data networks covering Japan or Europe at the time. Had the pageboy moved forward, it would have therefore been limited to North America. It was deemed by Nintendo's management back at its Japanese headquarters that this would have gone against the core appeal of the device. Nintendo wanted it to be universally available and functional around the world. This they believed was key to its success. The Page Boy was shelved for good in around July 2002. The outcome was disappointing for members of the team like Eddie Gill, but he told me that he was more than understanding upon learning the news and ultimately agreed with their decision. The device would have been doable, they believed, in America, but limiting its scope to one territory essentially defeated the point of what they were trying to accomplish. A ubiquitous add-on for the Game Boy Color's massive user base that would have allowed consumers from all over the world to communicate with one another, and for Nintendo to deliver information to each one of them directly. The Page Boy was quite literally too ahead of its time for its own good, but in many ways it foreshadowed a number of innovations that Nintendo themselves would end up adopting. Game Boy Live could be seen as an early precursor to the Nintendo Direct, a messaging system that worked via automatically assigned email addresses similar to the Wii's, news and weather channels, bonus content exclusive to those who owned a certain accessory, live high scores being accessible to users, In pitch documents, the pageboy was even being pushed with the phrase Anytime, Anywhere, a slogan that was later used to market the Nintendo Switch. In the end, no actual prototypes were produced for the device, and all that remains of it is what I've shown you in this video. It's possible, Eddie Gill shared, that Nintendo might have retained some of the physical models made for the project, but nothing playable exists other than this demo presentation. The Page Boy finds its place in Nintendo history as an add-on that could have changed the way they did business, from the way playable content was distributed to how they announced games themselves. Had it made it to market, there were thoughts about bringing it to other handhelds like the Game Boy Pocket and whatever future platforms Nintendo was planning. But without that first device making it into production, it instead joins the Work Boy as another innovative accessory that will always leave us wondering what could have been. (laughs) It's a big deal. Unafraid to diversify and experiment, Nintendo has worn many hats over it's long history in the video game business, but something that has remained consistent throughout it is their very evident affinity for peripherals. Whether it's the infamous Rob the Robot, some DK Bongos, or a headset made from cardboard, fans have come to expect the unexpected from their accessories. As unconventional as some of them may be, there have been many others that didn't make it to market, and in this video I'll be delving into a handful of them, from proposals Nintendo shot down to fully greenlit projects that were later cancelled. We begin with the oldest case study on our list, which takes us all the way back to the third generation of home consoles. The NES sported its share of unusual accessories, like the pressure-sensitive power pad or the notorious power glove. A similar such curiosity almost joined their ranks at the start of the system's lifespan, as revealed years later by ex-Nintendo Game Master Howard Phillips. The company had been extensively mulling over the concept of an officially licensed Nintendo knitting machine. The device would have connected to the NES to knit sweaters, and users would have been able to choose from a multitude of different patterns. According to Phillips, it was Nintendo of America's president Minoru Arakawa who instructed him to pitch the product to Toys R Us founder and chairman, Charles Lazarus. He was apparently given very little notice, about 30 minutes in fact, to prepare for the meeting. His presentation included a live demonstration of the prototype knitting machine in action, which Phillips described in a Facebook post as likely one of his least genuinely enthusiastic demos. Toys R Us and other retailers weren't interested, nor were attendees of 1987's Winter Consumer Electronics show who had a chance to view the machine in its one and only public appearance. After flying under the radar, the Nintendo Knitting Machine faded into obscurity and was never put into full production. The GameCube went through various iterations over the course of its conceptualization. Nintendo, in their perpetual search for new innovations, trialed a number of emerging technologies during its creation. This led to multiple unrealized peripherals that were considered and prototyped extensively. The first was a GameCube controller which included motion sensors. Nintendo's history with such technology is well documented. The company quietly experimented with it for years before building it into hardware like the Wii. Few people outside of Nintendo were privy to their motion-sensing GameCube controllers, but the developers at Factor 5 Inc were among them. According to a developer who worked on GameCube launch title Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2, they had even flirted with the idea of using the motion controls in that game after Nintendo granted them access to the early prototype controllers. This wasn't to be, however, as the technology was vetoed by Nintendo shortly thereafter to focus on making a more traditional console, and decreased production costs. Another long-term obsession of Nintendo's is 3D, a fascination which eventually culminated in the Nintendo 3DS. This technology was also tested on the GameCube years earlier, although these attempts got much further than their aforementioned accelerometers. Nintendo was once planning to release a small LCD screen which could be attached to the GameCube, alleviating the need for a television and enabling a greater level of portability. This add-on, Made only one public appearance at E3 2002. It could be seen behind glass displaying demos for games like Phantasy Star Online and Metroid Prime. Unbeknownst to attendees, the prototype unit had a hidden feature, which remained a company secret until former Nintendo president Satoru Iwata revealed all years later. It was fully capable of displaying glassesless 3D via the same method of auto stereoscopy used by the 3DS. In 2001, producer Hideki Kono had been involved in creating a 3D version of Luigi's Mansion that would use this device. It had depth, so it really pulled you into the world of the game. I thought it was great," Kono said. Despite this positive internal reception, it was held back from release by production costs. Liquid Crystal was still expensive back then, and no matter how new an experience we could provide through the games, there would have been a need for players to buy the LCD as an accessory. There was even talk that it could turn out to be more expensive than the console itself. While Nintendo's version never came to market, third-party manufacturers stepped up to the plate with their own LCD screens minus 3D, and battery packs, allowing the GameCube to be fully portable. In 2007, Factor 5 Inc. proposed to Nintendo rebooting some of their long-dormant franchises like Kid Icarus and Wings. For the latter, the studio envisioned an original peripheral to be released alongside it. This was a pair of glasses with two infrared lights mounted on them, a gadget inspired by a 2007 viral video from computer scientist Johnny Lee. In the video, Lee demonstrated a setup using a Wii remote and infrared glasses that could produce a 3D effect, as well as tracking the user's head movements. The user would position a Wii Remote facing away from their screen towards them. The Wii Remote's IR camera would then detect the infrared lights in the glasses, transmitting this information to a computer program. The end result was the user's ability to adjust their view of the camera in the program by moving around the room and tilting their head. Factor 5 wanted to adopt Lee's concept and use the peripheral in their Wii games. Players would have been able to seamlessly adjust the in-game camera via head tracking, presenting A possible solution to the Wii Remote's and Nunchuck's lack of a second unlock stick. According to the studio's president Julian Egbrecht, they were talking with Nintendo in 2008 to potentially produce the device, although they weren't interested in making either of their proposed reboots. The heads of Factor 5 persisted nevertheless and decided to develop their Pilot Wings game as an original IP called Wii Fly. Another publisher named Zoo Games picked the game up and with it their Wii Glasses peripheral. According to Zoo Games co founder Lee Cummings, they had planned to produce the glasses in house and were holding discussions with potential manufacturers in order to do so. In the meantime, the team was creating prototypes using parts from disassembled Wii sensor bars. However, However, the rocky economic climate of late 2008 forced Zoo games to go out of business, leaving their Factor 5 projects without funding. A previously interested Nintendo declined to intervene, and Factor 5 Inc, unable to pay its workers, closed in December 2008. The Wii's head-tracking glasses would never see the light of day as a result, the two games that did support it, Wii Fly and Star Wars Rogue Leaders Rogue Squadron Wii, never saw release either. One Nintendo accessory that did eventually launch was the Wii Zapper. This plastic mould could house the Wii remote and nunchuck to mimic the feel of an arcade light gun. Debuting alongside Zelda spin-off, Link's Crossbow Training, it would go on to be supported by only a handful of games throughout the generation. The original vision for this peripheral was quite different from the final product, however. Initial designs imagined a device with slightly higher production quality that would have effectively served as an add-on for the Wii remotes, more akin to the nunchuck. A prototype model for this iteration of the Zappa was shown off at E3 2006. Unlike the finished design, it more closely resembled a shotgun as opposed to a submachine gun. The device would connect to the Wii Remote's connection ports and had its own control stick built in. It also had a trigger hole with one large button, instead of the nunchuck's two shoulder buttons called Z and C respectively. As development went on, this prototype Zappa was given its own independent rumble feature. Players could insert one additional AA battery into the device, which would provide rumble feedback to the whole Zapper when players successfully hit a target in their demo. Nintendo's sources explained that concerns about pricing were to blame for this version of the Zappa being nixed. A comment from Nintendo designer Shigeru Miyamoto in an Iwata Asks interview seems to support this suggestion. We decided against it because we really didn't want customers to have to buy the extra batteries. That's one of the reasons developing this product took so long. Its rumble functionality and control stick stripped out, the Wii Zapper was essentially reduced to a plastic shell. It was finally released in late 2007. In January 2008, Israeli tech firm 3DV Systems announced a new webcam called the ZCam. This was billed as a desktop camera with an infrared sensor for tracking the movements of its users. It was capable of sensing depth, allowing it to detect how close users were to it, as well as their exact gestures with low levels of latency. The device made a few appearances at trade shows throughout 2008, including the Consumer Electronics Show. Its primary application was for video games and 3DV demonstrated this with a boxing game prototype. Responses among attendees were said to have been positive. Sites like IGN expressed their admiration for the accuracy of its controls. What wasn't known at the time was that prior to these public showings, the Z-CAM was originally proposed to Nintendo as a potential peripheral for the Wii. 3DV presented their ideas to the higher-ups of Nintendo in late 2007, according to CVG. Their presentation is said to have left an impression on the company's management, including Satoru water they apparently showed off their aforementioned boxing demo and a prototype of the z cam with voice recognition functionality. They presented it as a new twist on the motion controls that Nintendo had pioneered, reasoning that it would be a natural fit for the platform's audience. Although their presentation is said to have impressed them, Nintendo ultimately did not agree. According to a source from their Kyoto HQ, Iwata himself raised concerns about input lag and that it would be too costly to sell as an additional accessory. For context, the Zcam was later set to be sold as a standalone product for PCs at an estimated price of $100. The two parties consequently went their separate ways, and the Zcam would never officially be released. Microsoft bought 3DV out in March 2009, and three months later, they revealed Project Natal, an Xbox 360 peripheral using essentially the same technology. After some cost-cutting measures which downgraded the hardware, it was released as Kinect in late 2010. One of Nintendo's more infamous unreleased peripherals is the well-publicized Wii Vitality Sensor. This gadget was unveiled by Satoru Iwata at E3 2009, where he briefly discussed its potential applications. The Vitality Sensor was a small device which could read the user's pulse from their index finger. It would connect to the Wii remote and send this information to the Wii console, allowing games to monitor their pulse during gameplay. If Iwata's comments are any indication, Nintendo saw the accessory primarily being used as an aid to lower the player's heart rate and help them relax. He also discussed it being used to extrapolate other information from inside the body, such as mood and anxiety. The company even foresaw the potential for software using it that would help people fall asleep easier. At its reveal, no release information for the Wii Vitali sensor was provided, but internal estimates expected it to arrive in late 2010. Following E3 2009, no further details were provided for some time to come. The lack of news was acknowledged by former Nintendo of America president Reggie fils in a March 2010 interview with Kotaku. The first thing we need to do is show our vision for how the Vitality Sensor can be used for a new and unique experience, and we recognise we haven't done that yet, he said. Our focus is to bring to life how you could utilise the Vitality Sensor, and our goal is to do that sometime around E3. That goal would go unrealised, the Vitality Sensor did not appear at E3 2010. Then EVP of Sales and Marketing, Cami Dunaway, provided Game Set Watch with a justification as to why this was. As we thought about what we wanted to bring to E3, we realised we had a really packed agenda. We also thought about the atmosphere at E3, which is noisy and adrenaline filled and loud and stressful, and it just didn't seem like the best environment to introduce a product that's really about relaxing, so we decided we'd think about other venues that would be more appropriate. As time went on, this pledge wasn't followed through on either, and updates from Nintendo on the accessory stopped. Rumours swirled about its cancellation in 2010, but it would be another three years before the company would officially reveal its fate. The project and its related software had been shelved, amid concerns about the device's reliability and its viability as a commercial product. In July 2013, Satoru Iwata explained to Nintendo's investors, we could not get it to work as we expected, and it was of narrower application than we had originally thought. Nintendo had carried out extensive trials for the accessory throughout the twilight years of the Wii within the company. 100 employees tested the vitality sensor, but it was found that it only functioned as intended for 90 of them. The device was supposed to work by observing the waves produced by the pulse and interpreting this information to quantify how tense or relaxed users were. However, the technology was too simplistic to do that accurately for 100% of users. It therefore fell short of a water standards, although he expressed the company's desire to one day try again if the technology allowed it. We would like to launch it into the market if technology advancements enable 999 of 1,000 people to use it without any problems, not only 90 of 100 people. I actually think it must be 1,000 of 1,000 people, but it is a little bit of a stretch to make it applicable to every single person. Did you also know that there's hidden data within Ocarina Ocarina? ocarina did you also know that there's hidden data within ocarina of time that says i love you or that rare have outright stated that one of diddy kong racing's playable characters is a convicted criminal for tons more n64 game facts check out the video on screen